2: Stop! Uh, oh, Stop! Like... I was just working.
1: Was... Showtime at the Apollo.
2: You know, Valentine's Day is three goddamn days away. I want to resolve. I'm willing
0: to be the one to resolve
2: it. So I call her, and she's changed her number. So I walked over to Antic Attic, you know, to get her something. I thought, you know, I'd go over to work, give her an early Valentine, and you won't believe it. She's there with this guy, this really young guy. And she looks at me like she doesn't even know who I am.
3: Excuse me? Can I help you find something, sir?
2: here at lacuna we have a safe technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories is there any risk of brain damage technically the procedure is brain damage it's on a par with a night of heavy drinking nothing you'll miss okay so uh just tell me what you remember
3: people tend to think of memories as being some kind of concrete record that you can just go back and access like a file on a computer or a videotape and it's not like that at all what are you doing here
2: i'm not
1: really sure what you're asking at the end 70 percent of participants say that they committed these crimes that never happened and that they they report details about remembering how they felt at the time what it looked like why they committed this crime and what it provides is compelling evidence that it's quite easy to convince people that they committed crimes that never happened
0: i'm sorry what should we do i
1: don't know no you're freaking out no we? we have to do
2: something So the idea behind a targeted amnesia would be some procedure that you would use to actually go in and target a specific memory rather than targeting memory itself.
0: I think about it this way. It's like water is the most nourishing thing that we know of for our bodies. And yet it can be used for nourishing our bodies or it can be used for waterboarding somebody. So if something that elemental can be used for good and bad, everything under the sun can be used for good and bad.
2: Patrick. Can we just please get through this? we got a very long night ahead of us.
4: Hello, and welcome to science with me, Rick Edwards. I'm joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. Do you want to just say something else, just to mix it up?
5: <sighs> not really, no. it feels no. like a no. no. All right,
4: fine. So by now, I mean, obviously, you know how this podcast works. We take a film, um, not always a film. Not It's sort of nine times out of ten a film. Actually, it's probably 19 times out of 20 a film. <laughs> we like films. It's often a film. Yeah, and, uh, and then we look at the science within the film and we ask three big questions. And I'm talking big questions. This episode, we are going to be talking about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is an absolutely
5: ideal film. It is, it is brilliant. A, a brilliant film. I have a confession to make. The first, <laughs> Oh, dear. <laughs> the first two times I watched it, I did an Inception and just fell asleep. It's almost like my brain just shut down, couldn't deal with the complexity of it, I went to sleep, tried it again, exactly the same thing happened. Third time, got all the way through it, loved it. <laughs> yeah, third time
4: lucky. <laughs> I think the thing is that because the narrative is so non-linear, and it's deliberately confusing because it's kind of playing with your own perception of what's going on and, and kind of the concept of memory. If you're not absolutely focused, then you are likely to fall asleep. Yeah. But that isn't to say it's not a great film. When was the last time you watched it? Uh, probably about
5: ooh, eight years ago. I think quite a while.
4: I did a refresher and watched it on a plane yesterday. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On a plane yesterday, Al Z. Massive Al <laughs> Flew uh, to Glasgow and back in a day.
5: Oh, yeah, that's he?
4: right. <laughs> uh, which gave me exactly enough time to watch the film.
5: Oh, that's perfect.
4: Yeah, it was perfect, actually. So the sort of basic premise is that Jim Carrey plays this guy Joel, and he has gone out with a girl called Clementine, played by Kate Winslet, and they've gone out for a couple of years, and you, you really you're not clear on this until about no, half an hour into know, the film. Do you? No, but what has happened is they've gone out for a couple of years, and then after they've broken up to kind of eliminate the pain of the memory of the relationship, Clementine has gone to this sort of quite creepy setup where they will erase memories for you, memories of events or memories of people. And then Joel also does it. So they've both erased the memory of each other, but then they meet again and it's all sort of very... Confusing and complicated. One of the guys, uh, which is, I mean, in a way, you sort of think, fair play. And then, like, played by Elijah Wood, who works for this company. Is it called Lacuna? Yeah, Lacuna. Who are the, the people who will erase your memories for you? He sort of uses all the information that he's got about their relationship to basically seduce Kate Winslet's character. Classic move. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit seedy. But the the, the main thing is, it's kind of like a really fascinating examination of how much of our identity is formed by. our Memories, are you the same person if you've had your memories are a big part of your life removed? And that's what we're going to be looking at today because I mean, it's, it's not soft science exactly, no, but it is perfectly for us science ish.
5: Well, I think there's quite a lot of hard science in there. I mean, when you're talking about neuroscience of memory. Yeah, you know, we don't know an awful lot. You know, we are going to be waving our hands a little bit. Here and there. <laughs> not like us. <laughs> but you know, the point is, it's not our fault. The scientists don't know a, a great deal about you know how memories are laid down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
4: Absolutely not our fault.
5: <laughs> so, <Not. laughs> so please don't complain to us when you don't learn anything.
4: So, I think we'll start off with something very basic. First question: What is a memory? And we ask that to Dr. Catherine Loveday, who's a lecturer in cognitive neuroscience from the University of Westminster.
3: People tend to think of memories as being some kind of concrete record that you can just go back and access, like a file on a computer or a videotape, and it's not like that at all. Memory is something that we reconstruct every single time. So every time we go back and remember a conversation we had, we are putting that together again from the building blocks of the sounds and sights and and also our own knowledge of what was going on at the time. Up until probably the 1920s, people really believed that memories were stored, like we think of them as being stored on a computer. A, A particular part of the brain would store a particular memory and that would be described as an engram. Back in the 1920s a guy called Carl Lashley got loads of rats he spent almost his entire life teaching rats to do something and then looking to see if he could remove or find that memory trace and he came to a conclusion at the end of a very long career which was that memories are not stored in a single place um, and that in fact memories are spread right across the whole brain. So this led on to some really important work by a guy called Donald Hebb, who developed something called the cell assembly theory. And in this theory, when you experience something, so for example a rose, you might hold it, smell it, look at it. This will cause a unique pattern of firing, which is the colour, the smell, the feel... And that unique pattern of firing, as it occurs, will start to become linked so that simply smelling the rose will bring back to mind the other things because it activates the whole set of cells. So you only need to activate a part of that system for the whole thing to become activated. When those things fired at the same time, they made a very distinct representation. And he coined this phrase, neurons that fire together, wire together. So if we take an everyday event, I'm maybe having a walk in the park with a really good friend and I can see somebody over there with a dog and the flowers smell nice and there's a bright sun in the sky. All of these different things are firing particular neurons in my brain and those are becoming, to some extent, linked together. Over time... These links can strengthen, so every time I think back to that moment or something reminds me of it, the links are going to become strengthened because the same set of neurons are firing together again. That consolidation can take a long time, um, years possibly. We know that certain things make it more likely to happen. Sleep, for example, is an important part of consolidating memories. And every time you choose to revisit it or think about it or talk about it or look at photos, that's going to strengthen those memories.
4: So it isn't as simple as I might have liked. How simple do you want it to be? I I wanted it to be old school. I wanted it to be, you know, it's just one place in your brain, it's got a memory, and that's that. No. But it's spread all over the shop, isn't it?
5: Well, they don't really know where they are. So Lashley thought they were spread all over the place. So he did this stuff with rats, and he was chopping out bits of their brains after they'd remembered like a location in a maze, chopped out bits of their brains and found that they could still do it. So he chopped out another bit, you know, another bit, in fact, a lot of rats were hurt <laughs> during like, the making of our understanding of memory. So he assumed that like, because you couldn't ever find the thing that destroyed the memory, they were stored all over the place. But actually, we sort of think they're, they're stored in sort of specific locations. We call them n-grams, you know, so that a memory is like this n-gram. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't really know what that is or how it actually works. It's sort of like a placeholder. We don't really know a lot. So there are specific things that happen, and there are obviously connections between neurons, these synapses, that get sort of strengthened, which means, you know, there's sort of almost like a thicker connection. But we don't really know how the information is actually encoded in the connection between two neurons. So, you know, there's there's still a hell of a lot to understand.
4: But the key thing is that you're strengthening connections between neurons. So if these neurons are kind of talking to each other more often, then the, the strength of that connection will improve. And if they yeah. don't talk to each other very much, then it'll be quite weak and you'll sort of get lost information as a consequence. Yeah. So a hazier memory.
5: Yeah, although, of course, there's long-term memories. So the stuff that you can dredge up that maybe comes from your childhood that has been there for you know years and years and years, and you might you know bring it back up, it's not that it just disappears. Somehow there is long-term storage of these things. We just don't know really how that happens.
4: I remember when I was at university reading a book. How was he? How was he? Yeah, and, uh, and, and loving, there was a chapter on some guy, and I can't remember his name, I don't think it was Lashley, who was investigating memory. And he thought, well, maybe they're forming unique chemical compounds. So there's like a unique chemical compound associated with individual memories. Yeah, Which sort of sounds a bit mad, but you kind of go, maybe. And so the way that he was testing it, was, and I think it was with rats or mice, he'd get the rats to like, do the classic thing, get through a maze, and then they, they learn how to get through the maze and get the food, great. And then he would take out the, brain, the brains of the rats and then sort of mash them up oh. and then feed them to other rats to see if then the rats, by ingesting the stuff, would then know how to get around the maze. And uh, what do you reckon? I'm suspecting that that didn't work. So the really fascinating thing was it didn't work, but also there was he could almost draw no conclusions. So it wasn't a, so there was sort of like like some of the rats would like run the way around the maze. Because statistically, it was sort of like an unknown. He just kind of went, "Well, I don't really know what to say about that."
5: That's it. That's uh, but a I have very... killed
4: a lot of rats. <laughs> that's a very poor episode in the history of science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the the book was actually it was called something like "Poor Episodes in History <laughs> of Science." It was excellent. <laughs> But these poor rats. Just, I mean, not great to be eating your mate's brains. (laughs) From what Catherine is saying as well, effectively, when we are recalling a memory... We're just re-experiencing
5: it. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, when you bring something back into your mind, you're just reactivating that connection, effectively. So you strengthen the connection, but you can also sort of slightly. There's no nothing to say that it will remain exactly the same once it's it's brought back into your mind. So so you're you're activating it. There's chemicals going on. There's there's sort of protein synthesis going on, and actually you can slightly change it every time you recall it as well. So you don't have a you know a, a reliable memory as such you know you remember something but every time you re-remember it you might be changing it very slightly.
4: Of course the other complication is that it's not like one size fits all with memory there are various types of memory that have different sort of characteristics here's Dr Catherine again.
3: A lot of the clues about how memory work come from studying patients people who've had damage to their brain and lose aspects of memory and this has been really important because For example, you can find people who know what a bike is but don't remember how to ride it anymore. But you might find other people who can get on and ride it but are no longer able to describe it. And yet again, there'll be other people who maybe can't remember the last time that they ever rode a bike but they still know what it is and they can still ride it. So all these different aspects of memory seem to some extent to be separate in the brain. This has led on to um, something called the systems theory of memory which is the idea that we have very specific parts of the brain that do different things. And this idea really was that the hippocampus was like the printing press of the brain and the frontal lobes are like the kind of librarian controller and the amygdala does emotion. And to some extent most of this is still true but we know that um, really theory has gone beyond this now and we know now that the hippocampus is involved in more than just memory, it does lots of other things, but there are regions of the brain that become active together for particular memory tasks. So when I ask you to think about the last time you rode a bike, that is going to employ different parts of the brain than if I ask you what a bike is or ask you to describe how you ride a bike.
4: Well, it's great party chat, for starters. I, I Always open up. <laughs> nice to meet you. Can you remember the last time you rode a bike? Okay, let me ask you another one. <laughs> what is a bike? <laughs> but it's, like, it's, it's essentially unbelievably complicated.
5: Yeah, yeah. You know, these are simple things that we do, that we take for granted, and nobody can understand how they actually happen within the brain. But why not? Because it's really hard to see what's happening in the brain. You're talking about things that occur on a sort of molecular level. You're talking about, you know, release of chemicals from cells to cause, you know, these transfer from just short-term memory to long-term memory. You know, you've got, uh, you know, working memory. She's talking about semantic memory where you you know what a bike is, but that's completely different from the, the concept of riding a bike and how it feels to ride a bike. But you can remember what that's like, and you can remember how to do it. And all these, you know, different types of memory are incredibly somehow encoded in this kind of lump of jelly inside your skull. It's it's weird
4: and difficult to get your head around the idea that if you know how to ride a bike and what it feels like to ride a bike, that you might not be able to describe a bike.
5: This is why psychologists and neuroscientists jump on people who have brain injuries because that's when it becomes really interesting, that idea that you know you can do one thing, but you can't do another. And so you get people like, uh, there's a famous guy called Henry Mollison who had epileptic seizures when he was a child, which got worse and worse. At age 26, they cut a couple of bits out of his brain. And then he became unable to... Fed it to, to his relatives? <laughs> no, just, just to the rats, obviously, yeah. in the lab. And he he was unable to form new memories. So he had certain things he could do. He could remember things from his childhood... You know, he could remember the floor plan of his childhood home. He could draw that out for you. But literally, if you talked to him and then ducked behind a pillar and then came out again, it was like he saw you for the first time. But he could learn certain tasks. So they got him to do these tasks, like drawing a line between two five pointed stars in a mirror, something like that. So he had to sort of, you know, conceptualize it in his mind. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't very good at it at first and he got better and better at it. But the thing was, he never remembered doing it before. So every time he came to it, he came to it like, oh, I've never done this before. But he would be really good at it the 10th time and he was terrible at it the first time. So his brain was capable of laying down certain sort of memories and certain sort of functional memories, as it were. You know, He was able to do something better the more he practiced it. But he had no memory of actually doing that himself. And these little things give you an insight into... You know, which bits of the brain are essential for doing which certain tasks. But, you know, you can't just dissect a live brain and then find out what it's doing. So it's really hard to get. I mean, rats and mice are fair game on this. But with people who can actually, you know, communicate with you about what they do and don't understand and remember, then, you know, then it's, it's, it's a little unethical, shall we say. So
4: the conclusion ultimately is that memory is really, 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 really complicated, which you would kind of expect um, because it's so kind of fundamental for learning and cognition and like everything. Survival. Survival, crucially. Yeah. I mean, the whole point of memory is
5: survival. That's Yeah, you don't make the same mistake twice.
4: Yeah. You just, uh, Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Oh, let's not get into that. (laughs) The thing about that is that like the first memory would have been an absolute boon for a little, uh, like, a little multicellular
5: goon. Yeah. that can remember something. Yeah, I know what's coming, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're godlike at that point, aren't you? Yeah, you are, with your one memory.
4: <laughs> and obviously, as with any complicated system, things can often go a bit awry, um, which leads us on to question two, which is how reliable are our memories? Can we trust them?
1: For a long time, we've known that memories are fallible. We've known that um, we can misremember things. We've known that we can forget things. It's, it's an everyday experience. And so I think that a lot of people realise it quite intuitively.
4: This is Dr Julia Shaw, a psychological scientist from London South Bank University. Julia is also the author of The Memory Illusion.
1: More recently, what we've done is we've just done more and more research and we've we've really found science to back up just how fallible memory is. Do you remember when you were in my belly? Mm-hmm. You do?
3: Uh-huh. What was it like?
1: Mm. I don't know what color was in it, but I still remember
3: what it what I was floating.
1: So from their inception, memories can be inaccurate. And we see this in terms of attention. We see it in terms of emotional arousal. For example, if you don't pay attention to something at all, we know that you can't form a memory of it. Uh, The line that I like to use here is that attention is the glue between reality and your memory. And I think that's really important because we assume that we can recall later things that we didn't really attend to, but that's just not the case. You need at least a tiny bit of attention. It's a little bit like if you're not looking at at something, you can't remember what it looks like later. The same thing happens with your attention. So if you haven't paid attention to something, you're already not going to process it, you're not going to remember it later. Additionally, if you are really emotional, so we often assume that, that maybe traumatic events or highly emotional events are going to be remembered exceptionally well or even perfectly because they feel so real when we relive them. But really we know that if it's too much emotion, that it can actually flood the brain. It can overload the brain, if you will. And then the memory doesn't even consolidate. It isn't made, it isn't formed in the brain in, at all. And this is why sometimes after very, very stressful experiences, there is no memory to be recalled. It's not that this person is, if you will, repressing it. It's that they just can't access it because it wasn't there in the first place. And you hear your heartbeat. Yeah. And I float it up to where your heart is I can hear your heartbeat like a drum. Wow. When we recall memories, it's different than when we're processing them. So while attention is important initially and emotion stays relevant, but the things that are different at recall are things like the process called retrieval-induced forgetting, which means that every time we recall something, we actually pull up that memory in the brain, that neural network, the brain network, and we change it slightly.
0: You got uh, any big Valentine's Day plans with her? No.
1: Then laid down that new construct.
0: Don't want to end up at Nicky D's, right? (laughs) (laughs) Necromancy.
1: And the next time we recall it, what we're doing is we're recalling the last time we remembered it rather than the original version. And so it goes on and on and on, and every time you recall something, you, you do this this process of, of pulling it up, changing it, and putting it back down. And so by the end, over, over many recalls, over many years perhaps, your memory can look dramatically different than when you started. Hey, you've got uh, any uh, big Valentine's Day plans make a reservation somewhere. On top of that, we've got things like confabulation, which is when we essentially make things up to fill in the gaps. So if you can't remember exactly how things fit together, maybe you remember that a year ago on a Thursday night, you went out with your friends, but you don't really remember how you came home. You don't really remember what happened the next day. You might impute, you might assume that certain things must have happened. I must have taken a cab or I must have walked home, whatever your normal process is. And then the next time you remember it, you might automatically say, oh, I went out and then I took a cab and then I got home even though that might not be accurate. So that's called confabulation. It's when you spontaneously fill in the blanks. We see it in a very extreme form in people with Alzheimer's or dementia because they often have missing pieces and they're trying to fill them spontaneously. But it happens to everybody.
4: Nice bit of irony there is I really liked her line about attention being the glue. And then I couldn't remember what she said. It was the clue between. <laughs> I think between experience and memory.
5: Uh, let's talk about goldfish memory. Yeah,
4: yeah. That's <laughs> so literally, as she said it, I was like, I like that. And then 20 seconds later, I thought, oh, I'll bring it up. And I was like, hmm, or will I? <laughs> but I was paying attention. So that suggests I've just got a sort of shonky memory.
5: Yeah,
4: yeah. It, it really resonates that thing of confabulation sort of creating memories to fit things because I used to tell an anecdote about <laughs> um, being at school so in, in PE lessons like you'd have in, in your sports store you'd have that big like thing that would swing out like a climbing phone oh, yeah, had ropes yeah, on and yeah. stuff and then it would go back in yeah. and I used to tell a story about when Chris Gale climbed up to the top and then he like was gripping onto like the netting that caught like the balls at the top. Yeah. And then we unlocked the frame and swung it back into the wall. So he was left hanging onto the, <laughs> the netting. And it's really, it's such a vivid memory in my mind. It's, like, it's hilarious. And I've been telling that for like a long time. And then someone that I was actually at school with, I was telling them, and they were like, that never happened. <gasps> <laughs> and I, like, and I really? sort of went, no, I, it, it did. And they're like, no, 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 no. no it, we talked about it. He was like, we, we said we should do that, oh. but we never did it. And I was like, but it's in my, I can picture him hanging onto this netting. And then yeah. he was like, no, you can't. You absolutely can't. <laughs> Because I've told it enough times, I've recalled it enough times, that my brain is now just like, yeah. You that, can't that. tell the difference. No, absolutely no, no, can't tell no. the difference.
5: So do you, despite that knowledge, do you still tell the anecdote because it's good? Yeah, it's great anecdote. Yeah. yeah, You, you don't want to truth in the way of a good anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm the same. I have been guilty on occasion of embellishing... Stories. Well, that's you know, fine, To turn them isn't into a, into a really you know strong anecdote, but the sort of choice to embellish that's a conscious decision. That is a conscious decision. But it's a whereas your brain
4: one. is also doing some of that without you really kind of signing off on it.
5: Yeah, it does make me wonder whether I can trust a lot of the stuff that I recall though. I mean, there's a long, long history of this kind of research that shows that actually we are all making stuff up all the time and we're really suggestible. So this woman called Elizabeth Loftus, the University of California, Irvine, sort of really pioneered this area by making people think that they got lost in a shopping mall when they were a child. And then they would start to tell that story to their friends or whatever. It would become part of their life story when they did this kind of stuff. And, you know, she can do it to anybody. She is just, like, amazingly manipulative. So she once had this guy, Alan Alda, who, is, you know, the guy from MASH, the broadcaster. Yeah, The yeah, yeah, yeah. science broadcast. He was coming to her to interview her. And she said, oh, you know, let's do a bit of, you know, research with you. And she got him to fill in this questionnaire. And then when she fed back to him from the questionnaire that he'd filled in about his childhood and stuff, she said something about, oh, the computer analysis shows that you over boiled eggs or something, and they make you sick now. So he came to campus, they had a picnic they offered him some boiled eggs and he said, no, 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 I can't eat them. You know, I had this thing when I was a child and I just over ate the boiled eggs and I can't can't eat them anymore. And I imagine that at that point they just fell about laughing. Can I tell you
4: the sweet irony of this? Go on. You've told me that anecdote before. <laughs> I told <you>. On Science-ish. <laughs> which is perfect. <laughs> I can't remember which episode, but as soon as you started, I was like, is this a joke? <laughs> like are you mad <laughs> have you totally lost it
5: <laughs> good anecdote though oh it's a great anecdote yeah and I tell it the same every time which is more yep. than I can say you, for your anecdote. you anecdotes. certainly do
4: you certainly do <laughs> brilliant uh, I mean you can't you, you just cannot teach that <laughs>
1: So within the literature, we often talk about what are called partial and full false memories. Now, a partial false memory is where you get some details wrong. So let's say you experience something or in an extreme case, maybe you witnessed a crime and you get pieces wrong. You remember, you misremember the, the sweater. You misremember what time of day it was, but they're they're almost insignificant pieces often. Now, a full false memory is when you misremember an entire event. And this is what I study. So I do research on implanting full false false memories uh, of things that not only you never experienced, but nobody ever experienced. So you're not stealing a memory, you're completely creating one. In this research, uh, what I do is I essentially, what I like to call, hack people's memories through trust, through misinformation, through source confusion, through all these processes, I get people to confuse essentially their imagination with their memory. And so what I do is I get people ahead of time to give me contact information for someone they trust, their parents, these are university-age students who are about 20, and they they give me this contact information, and then I get from their parents details about the best friend when they were a teenager, where they lived at the time, and making sure that they didn't actually experience the events that I want to implant. And then I bring them into the lab, and then after three friendly interviews where I introduce this misinformation back to them and say okay when you were 14 years old you committed a crime with police contact and the police called your parents which is how they found out you were with your best friend at the time and I insert the name of the best friend and you were in this location I insert the real location which gives it some credibility uh, and then I say what do you remember? And then initially people say, I have no idea what you're talking about, which is great because it didn't happen. But then over three weeks when I say, okay, no, no, let's try this. I I know lots of detail. I can't give them to you. You need to give them to me. But let's try and and recover this memory. Uh, And I use suggestive and leading techniques. At the end, uh, 70% of participants say that they committed these crimes that never happened and that they they report details about remembering how they felt at the time, what it looked like, why they committed this crime. And what it provides is compelling evidence that it's quite easy to convince people that they committed crimes that never happened.
4: So that's all obviously great stuff, but science can take it one step further.
0: So in 2012, we had a paper in Nature showing that we could go in and optically or artificially turn on one particular memory. And then we followed that up in 2013, this was on December 24th, showing that we can reactivate a memory and then artificially update it with information that was not present at the time of learning. So in other words, we can make a safe memory into a negative memory or a safe memory into a positive memory by reactivating these brain cells. My name's Steve Ramirez and I run a lab at Harvard University uh, and I'm soon transitioning actually to be a professor at Boston University. We found the brain cells in this case in an area that we know for dozens of years has been important for memory called the hippocampus. One of the areas that in a movie like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind you would expect to go in and be able to modulate particular memories. What we did was we found the brain cells in the hippocampus that processed a neutral memory, so just the memory of an environment. And then what we did was we artificially turned those brain cells on to force the animal to recall that neutral environment, but while an event of high valence was happening to it. So in this case, it could have been a negative event or it could have been a positive event. But the animal now artificially associates that safe environment with negative valence or with positive valence. And then later on, when you put it back in that environment, it behaves as though something positive or negative uh, happened there even though it hadn't. We followed up that work actually uh, by showing that we could find the brain cells that processed positive or negative memories. And then we can, in a sense, switch the valence that those cells are capable of driving. So cells that process the positive memory, we could artificially get them to now drive a negative memory and vice versa. So it's go- artificially turning positive into negative or negative into positive.
2: There's an emotional core to each of our memories. And when you eradicate that core, it starts its degradation
0: process. And by the time you wake up in the morning, all the memories from targeted would, have, would have withered and disappeared. We followed up on that uh, with a paper in 2015 where we were asking, okay, so we're understanding some of the basic mechanisms that govern learning and memory and false memories and artificially manipulating memories, but we asked could we do that now in the context of animal models of psychiatric disorders. So you could imagine going in and pulling in Eternal Sunshine and trying to really dampen down the negative emotional oomph associated with an aversive memory, or in the paper that we had uh, in 2015 in Nature, we asked... Could we go in and artificially activate positive memories in an animal model of depression? And then by doing so, we were able to alleviate a subset of symptoms associated with depression at the neuronal and behavioral levels. So the gist of it was that we wanted to go in and view memory now as a potential therapeutic, as well as trying to understand the basic principles governing learning and memory.
5: Okay, Steve's not pissing about, is he? (laughs) He's going in hard on this stuff. Rodents are just loving this, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah, rodents are really getting it (laughs) right in the head. (laughs) So, first of all, just a quick question from me. What does he mean by valence in this context? So, valence is the kind of association. So, you know, is it a positive thing for the rat or is it a negative thing? So, talk me through slowly what he's doing. So,
4: he's taking the memory of an environment. Yeah,
5: and he's attaching a new valence to it. So he basically can look at their brains when they form a memory of just being in this place, you know, this environment. stick a rat in a box. Stick a rat in a box, analyse which neurons are firing and making a memory of that place. Yeah. And you stick it somewhere else and stimulate those neurons so that it effectively is remembering the old place. Got you. But at the same time, you give it an electric shock. Naughty. And then you find, when you put it back in the original place that what you've done is associate the memory of that place with something negative. So you stick it back in the original box and all of a sudden it's shitting itself. Right, because it thinks it's going to get an electric it shock. It's going to get a shock. Actually, they freeze to the spot. They don't shit themselves. All oh, right, Just, you know, yeah, for good. scientific accuracy. Yeah, good to know. So it just had a memory of just being in a box, nothing going on, entirely neutral. Yeah. But now, being in that box, that memory is associated with something negative. You know, he's hacked into that, that rat's memory.
4: So this leads pretty nicely on to what I think our third question has to be, can we selectively erase memories as we see in the film Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind? And we asked that of Professor Joseph Ledoux, who is a neuroscientist from New York University. And so Professor Joseph started by telling us about the creation of
2: memories during
4: traumatic events.
2: So in these traumatic situations, memories are being stored in many different brain systems. Some of these operate at the level of consciousness, but others are operating at a more implicit or unconscious level. So the idea that some memories can be stored implicitly or unconsciously and others consciously is not some far-fetched hypothetical event. It's simply the fact that our brain is simultaneously recording lots of information uh, in any kind of experience. Very little of it is actually going into the brain in a way that can actually be consciously retrieved at a later point. Some of the more interesting systems that work in this implicit or unconscious way are what we might call emotion systems. I don't particularly like that word, but uh, it, it conveys what the essence of what we're talking about is. So in a situation of danger, uh, some systems are going to store information Uh, In this implicit way, the part of the brain that I've worked on for a long time, the amygdala, stores information implicitly, whereas at the same time, other parts of the brain, like the hippocampus, will store the information in an explicit way that can be later retrieved into working memory. We were interested for a long time in, in how memories are actually formed. And that work led us to the idea that these unconscious or implicit memories formed by the amygdala depend on protein synthesis since work on uh, a lots, lot of other systems in the past, for example, the hippocampus or uh, learning systems and in invertebrates like uh, snails and flies all depend on protein synthesis. So we assume that since we knew the amygdala was a key area for the forming of the memory, that perhaps maybe protein synthesis in the amygdala would be required to store, in other words, to consolidate a memory and make it be a persistent event that you could retrieve later in life. And indeed, we found that protein synthesis blockade in the amygdala uh, prevented the long-term storage of memory over time. And these were studies in which rats were given a tone paired with a shock. And when they hear the tone at a later time, some say 24 or 48 hours later, they will freeze to the tone. Now, if they've had protein synthesis blocked in their lateral amygdala right after the learning event, then they don't form that long-term memory. So there had been an old idea around that not only do you require protein synthesis to form a memory, but you need protein synthesis again after you retrieve a memory. So the retrieval process was thought to somehow destabilize the memory and uh, allow new information to be integrated into that memory, and the assumption would be then that you would need something like protein synthesis to store it because it's now a new memory. So just as protein synthesis was involved in the initial storage, it might be involved in the restorage after you retrieve a memory. And that hypothesis we tested. Uh, this is a study that Kareem Nader and Glenn Schaefe and I uh, did. And in that study, what we found was that protein synthesis blockade in the in the amygdala, specifically in the lateral amygdala, after the retrieval of a memory, prevented the rat from having the long-term memory. So.
4: Quite a long-winded way of saying that, yes, they can erase a memory.
5: So, yeah, you just stop the process of reconsolidation. If you don't have the proteins to do the job, then that's it. If you haven't got protein synthesis, you don't lay it down. It just gets kind of forgotten when it's brought back up. And how targeted can that be? I think you would have to associate it with very specific things, wouldn't you? So it's all experimental at the moment. With absolutely no
4: disrespect to Professor Joseph, obviously, these papers are... I mean, they're quite old now. Yeah, I yeah. I think they were written, weirdly written before, before Eternal the Sunshine. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Professor Joseph wrote to, I guess, Charlie Kaufman, who wrote the film. And to be fair, never heard back. <laughs> uh, but, but that, you know, that's by the by. But I'm interested to know what kind of techniques are now being used with targeted amnesia. Dr. Steve again.
0: The technology is available right now to really probe memory. It's it's unprecedented. I mean, like, I'm an eternal optimist, but I think it's actually a realistic claim to say that neuroscience really is undergoing a renaissance right now with The burgeoning of these tools of being able to go in and genetically engineer brain cells to respond to light, this technique called optogenetics. Or, in this case, being able to go in and visualize thousands of brain cells across multiple days to see just how fluid and how dynamic neural processing actually is. It's kind of amazing some of the studies that have really come out in the past, I'd say, decade and a half. Joe Ledoux's studies really re-kicked off this entire field of asking, can we go in and when an animal is recalling or when a human is recalling a particular memory, it's actually now susceptible to modification. So in animals in 2007 and 2009, there was this pioneering series of studies from Sheena Jocelyn's group, who uh, has a lab in Toronto. They were going in one of the centers in the brain that we know are involved in positive and negative emotions, uh, again, the amygdala in this case. And they were able in this case to find the brain cells in the amygdala that processed a negative memory And then what they were able to do was actually kill those brain cells that process that negative memory. And what ended up happening was by doing so, they erased the memory. So it was one of the first remarkable demonstrations that we could go in, target the brain cells that hold on to a negative memory, kill those brain cells, and then thereby erase that particular memory. I
2: couldn't wait to come to work. I had these fantasies of us being
1: married and having kids. Just, oh, I can't do this.
2: We agreed
1: it's for the
0: best, Mary. Yeah, I know. Follow-up studies have been able to show now that we don't have to kill the brain cells. We can actually just temporarily inhibit them to temporarily inhibit those negative memories. Uh, and then in more recent years, we've really tried to take advantage of this in the human literature by asking, okay, so we clearly can't go in and genetically engineer human brain cells to get them to do what we want them to do. But there is evidence that Given how malleable memory actually is when we recall it, we can ask, for example, when a patient with PTSD recalls a particular traumatic experience, can we go in and try to rewrite that experience or update it with slightly more positive information? So we're not erasing the memory, we're just trying to update that memory to be less negative. And then one of the uh, experimental techniques currently being used, for instance, is to go in and actually give the patients a small dose of ecstasy, of MDMA, during the recollection of highly aversive experiences. To ask, can that begin to permanently dampen now those traumatic emotions associated with that particular experience?
5: So lots of uh, psychoanalysts are really loving this because they can basically give a small amount of MDMA and people with PTSD can then actually talk about the stuff without all the negative triggers associated with it.
4: So are they only using MDMA or are they using other drugs as well?
5: Well, MDMA is a good one because it helps people really get past the anxiety when they want to talk about or they want to be able to talk about these events. Yeah, big time. But there are other things. Um, there's a drug called propranolol, which is a beta straight blocker. Name? I have no idea what the street name is. It's a beta blocker. And uh, people are suggesting that people be given that after they've been assaulted or been in a road accident or something like that. Because studies show that if you take that, you're half as likely to get post-traumatic stress disorder because you don't lay down the same kind of emotional memories. So there are all kinds of ways of kind of uh, altering people's Sort of memories as they come back up, as they're reconsolidated, you know, using sort of these chemical pathways.
4: So it's about inhibiting those chemical pathways that are reconsolidating memory. Yeah. That, so, that's and, the, and you almost the
5: reconsolidate them without the negative associations, uh, which is what, you know, MDMA sort of takes away all that anxiety. And so the anxiety and the negative associations aren't there when you relay down the memory. So
4: we're going to start seeing this being used on
5: humans a lot then do you think yes definitely mdma is now being licensed certainly in the states for psychotherapy use obviously here at Scienceish, we're very responsible people obviously. um so it
4: does beg the question just because we can do this stuff should we be doing it and we put that to dr Catherine and first up dr steve
0: i think about it this way it's like Water is the most nourishing thing that we know of for our bodies, and yet it can be used for nourishing our bodies or it can be used for waterboarding somebody. So if something that elemental can be used for good and bad, everything under the sun can be used for good and bad. Our job, though, is to take notice of that and say how can we prevent that from happening.
1: I'd also like to acknowledge the contributions not only that... An analogy is with the human genome. from China made to the vast international consortium that is the Human Genome Project. The Human
0: Genome project. It started in the 80s. It wasn't completed until 20 years later. But the conversation of should we genetically modify our kids? Should we be able to edit out certain parts of the genome that are involved in disease or personality disorders or the works? That conversation started decades before the genome was even sequenced. But that's good because that means that the proper social infrastructure was beginning to be put in place to tackle those large scale questions. I think we're doing the exact same thing with the concept of memory modulation because we can begin thinking now like, should we do this? If we fast forward into like a Blade Runner style era and say, can we and should we be able to tinker with memory in the brain? You know, I think the answer is going to be nuanced. But my personal answer is uh, yes, I think we should. But one way of preventing misuse is to keep it strictly in the clinical setting.
3: Without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever
1: produced by humankind.
3: Neuroscientists are increasingly beginning to talk about the concept of erasing actual memories, specific memories. I have to say I'm still a little bit sceptical as to whether it could ever be done, but I think most things are possible and we are getting better at being able to kind of decode particular memory representations in the brain. I personally would not choose to do that. I would not choose to have any of my memories erased, even the worst, most painful memories, because I think they make me who I am. They make me make the kind of decisions that I make, and I think even the worst memories have probably made me a better person. i work with people who have memory impairments amnesia, dementia and many of those people have been robbed of their memories they've had no choice but to lose a big vast chunk of their memories and our whole identity is wrapped up in what's ever happened to us that makes us who we are and it connects us to our friends and to our family and it enables us to envisage a future so personally I would not
5: want any of my memories taken away it's a tough one isn't it would you do it broxy i don't think i've got anything in my past that's so traumatic that i would want to mess with my memory in that respect but i think lots of people do and so i think it should be an option
4: would you want to erase the memory of retelling that alan alder (laughs) anecdote
5: (laughs) yes please because I'd get rid of that. But we can just do that in the edit, can't we? No,
4: no, unfortunately, we can't, Brooksy. Yeah, I think I sort of agree with Dr Catherine, actually. Same as you, I don't have anything that traumatic, or nothing that I haven't blocked out myself (laughs) anyway. (laughs) It does feel like it forms who you are, all of that stuff. I guess what we don't quite understand is the impact, which is what the film explores, yeah. of losing big chunks of memory That's what on, worries on your personality. Yeah. Because it's all kind of shaping and, and, and related, isn't it's it? It's
5: that hole, isn't it? The lacuna in yes. your life. You would constantly worry, what was that period that I can't remember at all?
4: And there's a there's a point like quite near the start of the film where the main doctor, the Tom Wilkinson character,
5: yeah.
4: where Jim Carrey says, "And is it is there any chance of me getting brain damage? And the guy go and he says, well, it, I mean, technically, it is brain damage that we're giving you. And that really, uh, that sort of sat with me. I was like, yeah, I don't fancy it. Yeah, I don't want anyone going in and, and tinkering. I think your name is magical. This is it, Joel. It's going to be gone soon. What do we do? Enjoy it. So, our three questions were, what is a memory? That's Um, very complicated. It's very complicated. It's not just in one place. It's kind of spread around and... And
5: it's constantly reforming.
4: Constantly reforming, reconsolidating. And that's what gives rise to false memories, which was our second question. How reliable are our memories? Not very. Not very is the answer. Chris Gale. Yeah. He was never <laughs> yeah. up there. He was, no, I think he was up there. He just was just on the top of the climbing frame and then nothing happened and he came down again. <laughs> but I'm not telling that anecdote repeatedly, am I? <laughs> I was a kid in my school who climbed to the top of the frame once and then back down again. It was amazing. <laughs> and then uh third question uh, was can we selectively erase memories I think like we can. in the turn of sunshine? Yeah. I think um, we can. That's quite scary. It is, but then the, the clinical applications for people who are suffering severe disorders as a consequence of, of memories, I suppose. Justify it. But I wouldn't be rushing to a Lacuna-style enterprise no. to sort of tinker with something, because I didn't, I didn't really enjoy that. Yeah, that was a really crap yeah. night out
5: on Saturday. Let's
4: just get rid of that yeah. one. We lost Five Aside on Tuesday night. <laughs> Let's just get rid of that, please. <laughs> uh, no, not for me.
2: Change your heart
1: Look around you
4: Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks.
1: It will astound you
4: The producer was Max Sanderson, with sound design by Ivor Slayer-Manley. I need your loving The assistant producers were Cormac McAuliffe and L. Scott. Like the
2: sunshine
4: This episode featured Dr. Catherine Loveday, Dr. Julia Shaw, Dr. Steve Ramirez, and Professor Joseph Ledoux.
2: Everybody's got to learn something.
0: Head, big knife is that psycho okay dancing lady are, are those wolves dances with wolves
5: they kind of look more like foxes or a hedgehog okay what's this uh, a radio another wolf slash fox and lots of people
4: radio fox group radio wolf
0: bunch radio wolf gang Radio Wolfgang
5: emoji title. I love it. Smiley love heart eyes, winky kiss. Hello, this is Radio With it. Yeah, we're back on air. It don't down, but we don't care. We're mobile
4: now. We're everywhere. Yeah, Radio With air.